Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a good story. It's hard to find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's outer space today. We're going to get out there to outer space. But don't worry, there are monks. <laughs> and the church and, and a pope. The church. Luckily, yes. This was a great book. Um, the Game oh, of Fox and Lion by Robert R. Chase. And I have in my hands here uh, a Del Rey paperback. I don't know if, if that's Me the too. same way you read it, but uh, yep. with a really cool cover. And um, and it's a scene that's from the book even, <laughs> which yes. you know, science fiction novels often have a cover that has nothing to do with anything. But um, but yeah, it's a really cool, cool cover by Daryl Sweet, I think. You know, I didn't even pay attention to what they were doing on the cover. Yeah. So that shows what I know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the what do they call them? The bestials, helping uh, helping Benedict into his chair on the on a high gravity planet, right? So that he can cruise around. Right. Yeah, because he gets really yeah. heavy there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. And they're extra strong. Well, this is from 1986. Yes. And mm-hmm. it's I don't know where I even ever heard about it in the first place. But I've read it probably four or five times. No kidding. Wow. I've read it for a long time. It's definitely going to be on a reread list for me because... Oh, good. Yeah, I thought it was really great. Um, yeah, it's um, it's funny because you were telling me you'd seen this author, Robert R. Chase, has written a few short stories recently. But when I looked around, oh, a couple of years ago, I couldn't find much on him. Hmm. He's written a couple other books. And one of which shapers I love. It is mind bending. Oh, cool! It's not easy, <laughs> but it's so amazing. Cool. And the reason I was looking around is because so many of the things in both of those books hearken to a very Catholic understanding of the world. Mm. And in this one, of course, there's a monk. So that get, and people who are Catholics or you know against Catholics or whatever. So that gets brought up, but. Um, the other book that's not really brought up, it's just kind of more Tolkien-esque where it's just part of the worldview it was written from. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah. So he's written three novels. It looks like, and he, we mentioned those, but this one, the game of Fox and lion was his first. And then okay. he wrote shapers and then he wrote a sequel, uh, to game of Fox and lion called crucible. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he's written a lot of short fiction. Like I said, he's. Um, I'm looking at ISFDB, and it, it looks like he's gotten pretty active. Uh, oh. 2014 through 2018, there's probably 10 short stories and novellas. Oh. Asimov's Analog, um, various places. Okay. Yeah, the latest one was January of this year in uh, Asimov's story no, called that's... Assassin in the Clouds. That's what I get for not reading science fiction magazines, I guess. <laughs> I resubscribe to Analog. And I, I've talked okay. to you before about this, but I've had uh, a lot of trouble connecting with um, science fiction that's being written today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this this is just cement set. I mean, uh, here's another book from 1986. I think it just has to do with... Uh, um, well, there's a couple of things. You know, one of them, you know, I do like... Uh, some of the hard science fiction aspects of things. Right. And this book does have that. Yes, um, it But there's not a lot of people interested in that right now. <laughs> um, I, I'd be surprised if there was, you know, one out of 50 stories that actually tries to portray something that really could be or real mm-hmm. in any way. Um, it's just not what they're doing nowadays. Um, and, and then I think the other thing is just the focus, you know. Uh, you know, what's the point of the story? Um, you know, and uh, this this one is really great. You know, there, there, there's that monk that's in it, uh, you know, Benedict. We'll, we'll talk about who he is. But, um, yeah, I mean, all his, his reasons for doing things are explored. And, <laughs> and this book yeah. is not in a hurry. And, and I think that that is something that I get weary with as well. Because right. I think what people want now is like, go, 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 go. Let's turn the screws on these characters. Let's make it uh, uh, as horrible as we can, as shocking as we can. Um, and then with Joss Whedon-type dialogue. 
<laughs> and that's pretty much what science fiction is today, in my opinion. Well, <laughs> very yeah. cynical opinion, I, I admit, but I just have had no success trying to trying to read it. I've had a similar problem, and I think it's because um, instead of telling a good story where there's a point of view, but the story is also interested in telling a super good story. A lot of today's authors are much more interested in getting their point across sociologically or whatever kind of point they have. And they are busy hitting you with a big hammer. So you don't miss what they're saying and how important it is and how obvious it is. And we've always had that kind of thing. But I was just thinking of like, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's, even his short story, The Star, or, you know, the Foundation Trilogies which were, you know, essentially short stories a lot of the time put together and they were entertaining you. Mm. The other stuff is there, but it's not, I don't know. It's just somehow not, you're not being slapped in the face by it, which is, I have to, and to be fair, I mean, I felt that way when I read the Narnia stories because I read them as a college student Mm. and I could Mm. see what he was getting at because I wasn't a child where you could write a lot of, um, fantasy and you have a certain ideal in mind, which is what Lewis did. And I'm looking at it going, oh, right. Aslan, <laughs> Christ, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and so it can happen on all kinds of levels. It depends on who the story is being written for also. And so the, if the story is being written for a bunch of people who think just like you do, mm, yeah, you might not worry yeah, about it. I think that that's what... Uh there's a lot of that going on, you know, with the Hugo Awards and things like that. There's, there's a, uh, a group kind of in a bubble mm-hmm. and they're writing for each other. And, um, I'm just not in that group, I guess. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, to be fair, there's a group who are writing, you know, there are people who are writing like from one sociological point of view and another sociological point of view. And I don't like either sets mm. of those yeah. stories. Because there's, you know, basically the progressive sociological people and the very conservative ones, and they're all too heavy-handed. Yeah. Well, almost all of them. <laughs> um, there are some, I'm sure, who I like, and yeah. I don't worry about it. But it's you have to take it for what it is. And I prefer a story where there's, like, the story. And so this one, The Game of Fox and Lion, it's mostly told from Brother Benedict's point of view, but it starts off introducing us to John Chang, who is a he's a high counselor of government. And and we're in outer space here. I mean, Earth is way removed from everybody. And um, these people are dealing with their own problems, part of which is that there has been genetic engineering going on. And one group of people who are genetically engineered are called bestials. They call themselves the clans, but Mm -hmm. basically they were um, designed to be able to work on planets where they needed mining. So it says it doesn't help that they look like werewolves, but anyway, (laughs) they're in great conflict with each other. There's a war going on, an interstellar war between them and between the effects of the war and the effects of the power struggles, this guy is trying to save his company. He'd also like to help win the war, but he really has to save his company. And so the only way he can figure out to do that is to come and get Brother Benedict, who's really known as Paul Nicolo Reynard, Reynard meaning fox. And he is the last of, as the book says, the specially enhanced multi-neural capacitance, which made me think of Blade Runner, and what are those called? Um, yeah, I think they're replicants in there. Replicants, so they're yeah. not really human, but basically the genetic engineering that went on also was trying to make supermen who are super smart, very strong, and so he's one of those people. And that's why this guy wants him, because he can think and see on a whole different level than regular people. Right, so his, he, his, his, yeah, it's his analytical abilities, right? They, right. It's kind of like in... in uh, turned up to 11. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) or maybe 12. And so he, when the book starts, he has tracked him down because this guy's been in hiding because people would like to kill him. They're, you know, or they're the defenders of humanity who want to kill everyone who's not just a perfect human, I mean, not perfect, but just not an un, 
messed with human being, an unengineered human being. And so there's a huge question then of, can you do this? What's human? What's not human? Um, he's tracked this guy down and he's joined a Catholic order of monks who are um, doing terraforming to a planet. And he maneuvers him or forces him to come and be part of the Chang Corporation's group. And so the story really is, I've given you a lot of the backstory that's revealed throughout the book, but the but the basic story is Brother um, Benedict is going to do this because he's made himself a servant to this guy in order to, you know, save his little brotherhood and the plan that they're terraforming. But what else is going on? Because it's very complicated. Yeah, yeah. As things unfold, attacks and politics, and it made me think of Dune in some ways. Yeah. All the political yeah. stuff. A lot of uh, political maneuvering. Mm-hmm. A lot of plans within plans. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, and the main character himself uh, has a similarity to a Mentat. Mentat? Yes, yeah. from Dune. Right. Dune. Yeah. yeah. Sort of a human computer in a way. Yeah, and he's very also engaged with his Catholicism because people keep saying, but, you know, we can't trust you. You had brothers and sisters who were betrayers of humanity in various ways. And he will continually bring it back to his faith. And he doesn't do it by going, well, because I'm a Christian, this. (laughs) But he kind of just talks very logically about, well, because this is what really makes sense in the world. This is what makes sense of life. Here's here's what I can do because I'm a member of the order or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, That was really cool. You know, he kept being questioned. Well, first of all, you know, people would question whether he's human or not, right? Right. You know, they they don't know that he qualifies. And then second of all, um, you know, much like (laughs) experience today, um, people keep assuming that um, he's just pretending to be a monk. And he's having to defend himself all the time. (laughs) Right. Because he's hiding in the monastery and they figure, oh, that's all he's doing. He can't possibly believe this stuff. And... uh, um, at, at one point, I remember he said, you know, I'm tired of being questioned about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, everybody's assuming that I'm doing this, but, you know, I'm having to defend this to everybody. But I thought that was uh, really cool. So he did. He did have a conversion experience, even if at first it was like, I'm going to hide with these guys. Something happened. Right. So. Yeah, because he, he says at first it was a kind of exactly what everyone was thinking. Mm-hmm. He was hiding out. But yeah. the more that he worked with them, the monks, on the project of terraforming the planet, it was through the work he was doing that he was connecting more and more with something higher, with God and with a bigger purpose and all this stuff. Um, and the, I think those are the elements of the book that always interested me. Even though I wasn't maybe Christian when I first read it, it didn't matter. I mean, it, yeah, we're talking about it from a Catholic point of view. But I was just fascinated by the way this was all woven together. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, because there there is the problem of how are they going to win this war? Nobody knows. Yeah, who- and, and this is not just like peripheral stuff. You know, the his decisions throughout the book, you know, and he's put in a place of sort of a prominence you know he's he's affecting the events of all around him mm-hmm. and and to the to the level of uh war you know battles space battles and things and his decisions are based on his faith um you know uh people question him about you know how can you be the admiral of this army or this uh this space fleet how can you possibly be that and a monk at the same time well you know he he wasn't completely straight at the beginning you know but uh as to what he was doing, but, uh, yeah, it it all fit. It all fit. Yeah. That's the thing at the end when there's the Frank conversation about, Mm -hmm. you know, the big reveal essentially, but you know, everybody, um, things are all resolved one way or the other. Yeah. And, um, there's the big conversation and he starts talking more about what was really going on for his mind. And you go, Oh, well, he was serving everybody he said he was serving, but there were other things going on too. So I thought it was very well done. Oh, good. I really liked it. Yeah. 
Well, and like I say, since I picked it for this podcast, or as I've said to you before, and I was therefore reading it and really kind of picking out going, my goodness, there's so many elements of Catholicism mentioned here. Then I started going, oh, am I too close to it? Is it not really as good a book as I thought? So I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was neat. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, the, it doesn't move super fast. And, and again, I, to me, that's a plus. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it's a relief. I, I like it a lot. And then um, it turns into these space battles kind of <laughs> close to the end. And the space battles are really good. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really engaging. Um, what's going on there. So, yeah. yeah. And that way it's almost like reading one of the, what's her name? Honor Harrington books. Oh yeah. You know, where mm-hmm. they'll have these big battles and they'll all be described and you can see exactly what's happening. And that's, that happens in several places, Yeah, you know, and you really get caught up in, Oh my goodness. I, oh no, the battle <laughs> star or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It reminded me that there was an episode of the original series of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I think it was, it was the one where, um, the same guy who played Spock's father was the, the Romulan commander. Oh yes, that was a good one. Yeah, and that was that was a real space battle one. You know, and mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Yeah. You know, and how, how that was progressing. Yeah. But yeah, I have an example um, on page thirty-one of mm-hmm. the kind of thing that we're talking about about the Catholicism, you know, entering in here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first thing that I marked that really had something to do with that, but. They were, um, or he's talking about uh, celibacy and the vow of poverty um, to a person that's uh, on a ship that's visiting. <laughs> well, it was visiting to get him, really, right? So mm-hmm. they, they want to take him. But, um, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, so it said, uh, this is this is really cool. So he says, yeah, you know, yet a man with a family must do that. It is his duty. Uh, so he's talking about, uh, well, let me go on. And that is the reason the terraforming of Venus was such a disaster. The investor states needing, needed a return in 25 years. They pushed too hard in the initial stages with too little data. As a result, the planet became a financial black hole that never paid off. The stewards, which is the name of his order, right, don't mm-hmm. need a planet to pay off. You know, isn't that right. refreshing, right? <laughs> they right. don't They're need a planet to pay off. Yeah. Our celibacy is really part of our vow of poverty. It means that what we do is not for us or for our children. We seed a planet for the sake of life itself and for the glory of God. Yes. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I was just yeah, like, well, all right. Yeah. Right. That's mm-hmm. how they're serving God. And I that theme keeps getting brought back to you because he keeps saying the more that I was working on this, the more I started feeling like the work for which God created man was spreading life. Yeah. And um I have something on page ninety two which kind of talks about that again because he is um talking to someone and he's saying when I while I was on Ariel we worked to spread life we matched algae and bacteria to soil plants to climate animals to the plants and all to each other slowly building an intricate interdependent structure a living cathedral that fed on sunlight to bring an entire planet to fruition after a while I came to the conviction that Dom Diego Cervantes was correct that this was the work for which God had created Adam, that it was the only work completely fit for a human being. For 10 years, I was, though I didn't appreciate it at the time, absolutely content. Hmm. And it's interesting because, of course, you can take that back to what we do here on our planet. It's the whole idea of bringing a planet to fruition, through working with animals, through feeding people, through our lives. That's what we were created to do. Yeah. And um, I really was impressed with that, that idea that it's part of God's matrix, in a sense, because what he's saying about this intricate, interdependent structure, a living cathedral, is exactly what the book, what he does in the book. He is to making an intricate, interdependent cathedral of all the problems that everybody's got that they need solved. 
to bring it to a solution that will help everybody out. Now, that's not what he's applying this to. But as I was reading it, I was going, yeah, that's what the whole book does. Yeah, that is what the whole book does. That's what I was thinking. You know, mm-hmm. It's like you know when you, when you get at the end to see his actions through uh, an overview, then you realize, you know, that is what, you know, he was true to what he was saying. Yeah. 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 Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, now I would like to get back to my terraforming, please. <laughs> yeah, I hope that you guys let me go back to the stewards, but I don't know yeah. if you will let me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's cool, but that's a, the kind of thing, you know, that, that he t- he speaks like or... How he does. Well, yeah, and because he also gets questioned, like you said, about him getting questioned of, um, you know, how can you be an admirable, <laughs> admirable, <laughs> admiral of a space fleet and people are getting killed and you're, you know, bringing war to people. And he's, of course, says, well, you know, this is what has to happen in order to settle things. But it also is kind of referred to at the beginning on page 30 where the ship's crew is on the planet where they find him. And so they're able to talk to the stewards a little bit, the actual individual monks. And they're saying, they're talking about, oh, here's the plan. We you know, have the vegetation. We've got sheep. We have dogs to herd the sheep. We're going to have herbivores and carnivores soon. And they were like, well, you don't need predators. Hmm. He says, well, because right now we're the predators. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're taking care of the sheep and everything. But, you know, at some point we start eating them. And he says the alternative would be for the herd to outgrow the grazing area and for them all to starve. Actually, you touch a continuing controversy within the order. Some of our members believe we have both the power and responsibility to undo original sin. If you can't make the lion lie down with the lamb, then eliminate the lion. They've even created some computer models of genetic modifications that might make predators unnecessary, such as having fertility automatically decrease with population density. So far, none of these models have withstood scrutiny. They all destabilize after about three generations. And so he says, the proponents keep saying you have to try. And he says, well, I'm not convinced. I don't know that eating flesh is actually evil. Mm, yeah. You know, and they say, has Brother Benedict taken part in the controversy? Yes, he is on the side of the predators. <laughs> and they yeah. say he would be. He would be, right. But it's that idea, too, of um, the church fathers and various philosophers used to debate, was there uh, predation before the fall you know, when when everything was just as God created it. And I can't remember if it's St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas who said, well, the lion never had teeth for eating grass. Hmm. It was meant to eat flesh. Yeah. If, if you're going with the Garden of Eden scenario, you know. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have evolution to think about. But he's like, this is just, you know. Yeah, that's just part of life. That's how it is. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah, the power and responsibility yeah. to undo original mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can you? that Because that's taking on yourself God's prerogative. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't try to help, you know? You're feeding the hungry, hopefully. Hmm. Helping make life better for everyone. Yeah, yeah. But you can't, you, we don't have the power to, to go that far. Right. Yeah. And every time that's been tried, look what, I mean... <laughs> communism and all these things it, that's true you know and it doesn't it doesn't fit human nature right right well, we have this we have this nature that is you know that we struggle to understand but um in fact you know he says it somewhere in here too i know he says it near the end as well but um it's sort of he came to realize that this matches human nature this um you know, what he was learning and what mm-hmm. he was doing. It it matched what he was experiencing, right? Right. And that was part of his conversion. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Neat. Um, another thing that, that goes throughout is this idea of, you know, who's human and who's not. Yes. And that's I, a- I know that there was a really great uh, uh, discussion, and I don't know that I'm going to find it here, but... Uh, but where they were talking about um, abortion and things as well. 
mm. and how the state or how the how the church um, said, you know, well, life begins at conception. And if there is an error there, it, it encompasses all the possibilities. You right. Know what I mean? And and he you know, he's saying so the church erred in the in the way that if if they did err, they they brought more people, more things into the life than uh not. <laughs> I'm not yeah. saying it very eloquently, but I think you get my my idea. He he's saying that, you know, if if life doesn't begin at conception, we've erred in the correct direction. Yeah, it, yeah. in in essence, it doesn't hurt to say that. I right. mean, if what you're trying to do is protect the life that is there hmm. or that will be there, you're you're going to make sure you protect that life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, and then um, now, now in this future, you know, the question is past that now. Now it's like, well, are these genetically altered things also humans? You know, are they... Are they also uh, part of this collective? <laughs> and right. um, yeah, at some point in it, you know, they are decided that yes, they are. Um, again, yeah, toward the very end. Yeah, but towards that's the very end. The right? struggle through the whole thing. And it's hmm. a surprise when um, Chang gets Benedict back to talk to the council. And the first, they ask him a question. And the first thing he does is say, Well, I can't answer you. <laughs> I need a ruling on this thing. And they're like, what? And he says, it says right here on this, under this one law that non-humans can't testify under, you know, whatever conditions. And they're like, oh, well, we're just asking you. And he, you know, oh, that's an old law. It hasn't been enforced for years. And he's like, seven years ago, a genetic variant named Buffy Heisinger was executed for giving testimony in court that was subsequently confirmed by four human witnesses her sole crime was being judged a simulacrum. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you could say that. I think you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, well, that was at the height of the defenders of humanity. Um, and he goes, uh, political passions have cooled. And he goes, right, but it's still a law. You still have to rule on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the problem is he's continually asking that. He's continually asking for full membership in his order. And they're saying... But if you're not human, you can't be part of the order. The Pope hasn't ruled on this yet. He's considering things. And it's the same problem that the clans have, the bestials. They're not considered human. But, of course, they themselves have to survive. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And as he points out toward the end, well, and, of course, we've gone way past one. And anybody listening already knows if you haven't read the book, you're in trouble. But um, – <laughs> He is pointing out why the war was starting. And he said, you know, the Klan had a lot of mis... Everybody had misperceptions. And they were all acting based on a lack of reality, for one thing. So the other thing going through the book is he's continually going, but look at it like this. Mm. But look at it like that. We're not looking at it from all points of view. So this reality that you think you're standing on is only, you know, half there. Yeah, and yeah, and that, that's, that's a good a message for today too. Yeah, well, very and pertinent. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so at the end of the book, this is when he's pointing out that it's like a mystery, right? The mm. um, only way to understand everything he did is he fills in all these blanks, and we go, "Oh, here's what he was doing," because nobody understood everything. Yeah, and so he says the clan had two misperceptions. One is that the defenders of humanity who kept attacking them and. Um, being a prominent voice against them, he goes, they thought they were really powerful. No, they were just loud, hmm. but they didn't know that. So they were really worried that they were going to get attacked. He goes, and then the other mis misperception is because of the genetic tampering, they had these um, this this period of emotional violence when puberty came on. And so they'd evolved all these real rigid codes to kind of control it within their society. But because of that, element which they knew wasn't human they were afraid that what everyone was saying about them was true they were afraid they really weren't human hmm. and he said they thought they were savage beasts so also he says so they have made war not only for survival but also from despair thinking that nothing better was possible and that just kind of breaks your heart yeah yeah because he's of course echoing the cry of everybody who's ever been subjugated by somebody else. You know that you're, you know, you want freedom and all this stuff, but 
There's also that, um, you know, for lack of a better term, that Stockholm syndrome in a sense of mm. you eventually, if you're told something long enough, you start to believe it. Right. Right. And then how do you react? It's that despair. And so he says, nobody or all were acting what they perceived to be their best interest, yet their perceptions were so warped by their sins. You don't like that word, Chang. Most of us don't. Perhaps I should date my conversion from the instant I realized that moral theology gave a more accurate account of human conduct than any school of psychology because it understood that the basis of evil is intentional self-delusion. Hmm. Yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, that's good. You know, that goes back to what, what we were talking about and how, you know, what he was seeing matched reality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this explanation of why we are how we are uh, matches reality. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so reality is the only cure for delusion, but what view of reality do we have and how is it shown and understood by everybody else? And none of us can ever understand the way Brother Benedict does. Mm-hmm. or God, what real reality is. So we just have to feel our way and try to do the best we can. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's and, why... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and somewhere right before that, I think, is uh, the... Uh, I think it was the church, wasn't it? Declared, you know, the bestials yeah. and everybody as human. Yeah, because they and, had part of the seed of Adam. Right, so get these people some priests and let's start... Right you know, seminaries and, and all that other stuff. And, and, and that, you know, brings them into the human race, you know? Yeah. And I, I thought that was a very powerful thing too, because, you know, if, if this was happening, you know, today in some way, then uh, sending a missionary like to an alien race, you know, so many people would look upon that negatively, mm-hmm. and, you know, in, in society as if, um, we're we're trying to to uh, force them into something, right? Right. But but what that does, you know, you're bringing them into the fold, right? <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it's it's like you're showing them, them a great respect. I think. Yeah. Yeah, full communion, part of the family. Welcome home, and right. it's in fact there is the, in this. There's a priest who um, has gone out to be among them, and he says, I think he was assigned out there for some other reason. But he's like, oh my gosh, what I've discovered is these these are people. He's like, and there are, you know, there are faithful believers. There are people who want to be part of the priesthood. I can only get them so far because we've got to acknowledge them as human so they can fulfill their vocations. Mm-hmm. And he dies out there with them. I mean, you know, just old age and stress of the environment and everything. Yeah, yeah. But he's revered by them and being, um, he's kind of placed as a martyr. Mm-hmm. Because he gives them hope for the first time. Yeah. 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 That was powerful there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a tough environment, you know, uh, you know, as, as humans age and, and there's like a super high gravity. Right. And things, you know, yeah. It's just body falling apart. But in that sense, he's like the Jesuits, you know, who, learned Japanese and wore the clothing and lived among the Japanese in the villages or, you know, who came to Canada and lived among the Indians Hmm. just like them or, you know, all the places they did that, you know, becoming one of them. Yeah. So it's following that trend. It's following that tradition. Yeah. Yeah. What I was thinking of with the reality thing of we don't understand reality. So how do we understand what to do and it's like one of the signs I think that we it's so counterintuitive to understand real reality is all the things Jesus told us and he did the same thing right he embedded himself basically God mm, embedding mm. himself among humans yeah I'll be one of you so you understand how it works but it's the idea of sacrificing yourself for people even if you don't know those people mm. um how do you care for someone's greatest good when they're not the nicest people to you or when they don't seem like you at all? So they're, you know, part of that other group. Um, yeah. It's all those things that are counterintuitive to our natural instinct, which as Brother Chang would say, or Brother um, uh, Benedict said to Chang is, you know, we call it sin. Yeah. Those, those are the things where we're deliberately misunderstanding. 
Right, right. <laughs> Powerful stuff. Lots of really good stuff in here. Yeah. Yeah. I also really loved, um, and that kind of goes along with um, the whole, oh, crud, where is it? When Brother Benedict goes at one point to see the bestials and talk to them, and, and he's uh, doing a um, negotiation hmm. over a planet. Yeah. Uh, that they can have. And so he's got a time period where he has to kind of just wait around. So he's like, well, he'd been subjected to this before because it's, you know, always a power move. And so he's like, eh, I'll just meditate for a while, whatever. <laughs> and it says, so um, he said, uh, everything's kind of floating in his mind. It says, the figures advanced and retreated with his breathing. After a time, they arranged themselves on a chessboard. God loomed over them, an amiable, nondescript grand master. Then it was as if Benedict's point of view had suddenly shifted. The board was not a chessboard, but a matrix of some kind. And God was not so much playing against an adversary as against the pieces themselves, trying to set them in a particular set of relationships that would, Benedict's vision or imagination failed at this point, there was only the hint of something unimaginably grand and exciting. But the pieces obstinately insisted on going their own way, wreaking havoc on the delicate balance of energies within the matrix. Yeah. And I just loved that view mm. of this is, you know, of course, us. Mm. You know, God's like, it's it's not that here he's trying to win a chess game. He's just like trying to move you into relationship in a certain way. And we keep screwing it up. <laughs> yes, know? that's right. Yeah. It's that. Oh, so, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, the interconnected cathedral that's necessary to build a world. Mm -hmm. it's, that's what he's doing on a much grander scale. Yeah. I never thought of before we were talking about how important that whole terraforming conversation is to the entire book because it really sets the frame of everything that he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and now that I, I think about it, you know, we, uh, this character of Benedict, who has heightened mental ability, mm -hmm. right, is a little bit closer to God. Right. In what he can see, right? Um, because, you know, God would be well beyond that even, right? Oh, yeah. Well, well beyond. Um, but uh, how he's trying to manipulate everything into an end, and his end is actually, you know, good. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he's trying to find the greatest good. Um, you know, it's just a tiny, tiny little drop of a taste of what God's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of gently, mm -hmm. okay, well, now we'll, now we'll try it here. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Chang at the end, you know, when he, he takes aside Brother Benedict and drops that, that cone of silence or whatever you want to call right. it over him. That's what I thought came into my head, you know. Right. <clears throat> but uh, Benedict was like, oh, <laughs> I thought this was over. Yeah. But no, Chang was smart enough to say or to see. You know, it's, it's like someone seeing God's influence, you know, and saying, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. Something's going happening? on here, you know, but, you know, it's, it's stuff that we kind of do all the time. It's just like, you know, wasn't that amazing in retrospect mm -hmm. how that happened? And uh, yeah. that's really what that scene was. Well, yeah, exactly. Because you talk to each other and you go, oh, my gosh, this happened and that happened. And it's the realizations that you get from it. And I know that um, I love the thing because Chang's because what Chang has seen is he's seen a little of reality. Wasn't it Chang who said, oh, no, the way that battle went, you were manipulating it yeah. to make sure the Earth people left. Right. He, he, sure he said, he said basically, you made this into a draw yeah. when it should have been destruction. And, yeah, we uh, should have destroyed and them. And to everyone else, it looked natural, but, you know, something, something clued us in as to, you know, this could have gone much differently and, and what the heck is going on, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, and then he says, "Well, here's the problem. The right. problem was, you know, um that only by having a draw does everyone win." Right. And everybody should win. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz everybody started off from the wrong assumptions. Exactly. And they're understandable assumptions, mm -hmm. but nobody should be crushed because everybody misunderstood things. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, it gets you thinking, you know, about history and things. It's it's like, you know, you have these perception issues, you know, in diplomacy between countries, and you're mm-hmm. you're trying to keep everything balanced or in the air or whatever. But then, you know, someone like Hitler comes along that you cannot deny. There's nothing. Right. There's what it becomes a point at which there's absolutely no option. You know, how do you even deal with that? Um, yeah, it's difficult. Well, and it's funny that you say that because it, I was just thinking about the part of the book where um, somebody, probably um, someone who works for Chang, is saying, look, <laughs> no disrespect, man, which means, of course, you're going to disrespect him, <laughs> but to the Catholic clergy, but we don't need Brother Benedict, you know, the monk. We need Renard the fox. Mm. And Benedict says, and he's like, you know, prayer is all very well, but we need really action. And he says, Benedict says, I fear you are making the common mistake of equating serious Christianity with limp-wristedness. It was not meekness and passivity that survived the persecutions of Nero and Diocletian and went on to conquer the ancient world. And so then he just starts talking about, you know, person after person after person. And then he says, um, think of the clerics who defied Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of, you know, St. Joan of Michael Archangel himself. Yeah. There's more to all of these than pastels and pious sayings. And he goes, well, they had fire, but your present church isn't so convincing. We're getting attacked and all the Pope wants to do is negotiate. And he's like, it's our homes they're negotiating. And he goes, and you should want them to. Hmm. You know, if we go all out, no one wins. Everybody's having their planets destroyed. And that's... You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. There's negotiating and negotiating. And so he's, when once he becomes the admiral of the space fleet, he's doing a different kind of negotiating, but it requires getting everyone's attention. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that, and that, in that case, that's where it's almost a Flannery O'Connor thing, right? Mm-hmm. You have to use violence to get people's attention and <laughs> suffering. And once you do, then they might pay attention. Right. They might grasp the grace that's offered. Yes, unfortunately, that seems to be so. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'm looking at something on page 103 <clears throat> um, where Benedict starts to talk about, uh, you know, so he, he uh, there's this guy, Snowden, um, that he was oh, yeah. being taught by, but... He says, you know, there was for me, Benedict said, growing up under Snowden's tutelage, I had been presented with a universe that was random and purposeless. Human motivation could be reduced to power and curiosity. Evil and pain presented no intellectual problem. They were the expectable state of affairs. But good? What was I to make of a man like Father General Muir, whose main motivation really did seem to be a disinterested goodwill? How could I account for those days when, against all odds and any rational expectation, everything would go right? Most disturbingly, how could I understand myself and sweet troubling of my soul at a beautiful landscape or at some particularly haunting passage of music or my wonder at the complicated interdependencies of the human body or society or of the universe itself? I was not Prometheus seizing grace from the heavens. It swooped from the sky and seized me in its talons. I submitted gladly, but to a mystery. I know Jesus for my Lord, but I have no idea why he insists we should love our enemies when their extermination would prevent so much evil. My ways are not your ways, God says smugly. Well, that's for damn sure. (laughs) Right? That is for goddamn sure. That's for goddamn sure, right? (laughs) Yeah, that that that's just really powerful, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's great because yeah, I mean that that's not unlike my uh, journey, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, where you're, you know, you get this in, and it just stops making sense at some point. You know, yeah. there's more than this. Yeah, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> it's just true. Yeah. Yeah, and it hits so many people. It's because the soul is so indefinable, and we like to think we've understood everything, which, of course, we have not. That that comes up every day. Mm. But um, it's those little ways that you get touched you don't understand, and that gets your attention. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I'm reading The Long Loneliness by Dorothy Day. Oh. And, you know, she <laughs> she is so thankful when she has her child and she says, but who am I thinking? Hmm. You know? Yeah, that's right. Who am I thinking? Yeah. And that's, that's that uh, impulse of gratitude, which she'd experienced yeah. most of her life, but always kind of just rejected. Right. That was a big thing for me, too. Mm-hmm. Who am I thanking? You know? Yeah. Feeling thankful and uh, to what? To yeah. who? Yeah. Yeah. It's that natural crying out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's in there. Well, and we've been talking about all the Catholic stuff because clearly there's a lot of it, but this is, um, it's a really compelling, interesting story. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought so too. Along um, the way that, like we were saying, Dune with the political maneuvering and yeah, yeah. Um, then the big space battle. Right. And, uh, you know, the space travel in here was interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sort of jumping into some elsewhere and, uh, you know, popping back out. And it actually has a very difficult physical effect on people, mm-hmm. especially Benedict, who whose brain is, you know, going a million miles an hour. It's actually painful. Yeah. Um, once he goes this other spot, you know, somehow his brain is, his thoughts go somewhere, but he, he said it's physically, you know, just agonizing mm-hmm. and, uh, for them to be jumping around. Uh, but yeah, the, the space battle was just cool, <laughs> you know, jump, jump, jump. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but the, and then all of the, the, the stuff that he was doing to get everything lined up and, um, you know, these conversations with, you know, when he was talking about things like, you know, well, I'm human, you know, I, or I'm not human, I shouldn't be able to answer these questions. And then yeah. they declare him human so that he can answer the questions, which means that later in the book, he's lined up perfectly for what he needs to do next. Yeah. And everybody's like, you fox. Yeah. <laughs> what did you just do over there that made you so you can, yeah, you know, it was, you know, he could avoid being in a situation over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was neat. Really well done. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, when it all comes together at the end and you kind of look back and see everything he was doing and you're just like, wow. Yeah. yeah. What an intricate plot. It's Very definitely uh, a book that, that bears rereading, right? Which is, mm-hmm. I think, C.S. Lewis's definition of a good book. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, if, if it's something that you can pick up and reread, then uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and clearly we enjoyed it on the level of all this other stuff. But in, in a lot of ways, if um, well, I guess if you've gotten this far, you probably already read it. But it's good in terms of and I, maybe that's the reason I keep bringing up Dune, because that's also got religion as a very definite point of conversation all the way through because it's yeah. of the Fremen and, you know, um, all that's going on with the oh gosh, I can't remember what they're called, but the mother's religion or yeah, order that the Bene Gesserit yeah. and that sort of thing. It's it's all there. Yeah. It's just it's hooked on to Catholicism. Right, right. In that book, you know, they're called Orange Catholics. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> From the Orange Catholic Bible. Yeah. Catholicism's handy that way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> all organized for you. That's right. That's right. Just take it and launch in a different direction. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to seek out uh, some of his short fiction. Robert R. Chase. I was just thinking of that. And see what he's got going on. Mm -hmm. Especially this last little bit. Uh, You know, like, looks like 2012 through 2018. His first story was called Seven Scenes from the Ultimate Monster Movie in 1984. was his first story. (laughs) And it is an analog, it looks like. Yep. Analog. Okay. December 1984. I guess those are things you can find or buy. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to look. Yep, for sure. Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, uh, this would be something I might go to a library and find. If you have a university library close by, sometimes they oh. they have, you know, years and years of back issues of things like Excellent. this. Yeah. Oh, good idea. But how can you not read a story that's called Seven Scenes from the Ultimate Monster Movie? I was instantly interested. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Sounds much better than this book we read. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely on an equal plane with it. 
Oh, well, okay, yeah. yes. Can't be it, better. Equal to it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. I love well, it. Yes, wonderful. So thank you for picking it. Is there anything else you want to say about it? No, that's all I had. Okay. You? Yeah, me, me too. I thought, yeah, this is really good. Um, I'm definitely going to read Crucible mm-hmm. um, as soon as I find a copy. And I do have a copy of Shapers. Yeah, so. Shapers is, like I said, it's yeah. amazing. I it's... love these Delray paperbacks, by the way. <laughs> Those covers. They just I make know. me so happy. I know. Um, yeah, in, in the 80s. I mean, so many... They're just really neat looking, and and they're about and the they right length. Well. You know, there's just a lot, a lot of this stuff. It's just, you know, I'm sure that's nostalgia for me, but you know, seeing these on the shelf, and it was, you know, two dollars and ninety five cents. Oh right, <laughs> right. but it's about two hundred fifty pages, and nowadays I think four hundred pages is the typical, you know, yeah, whatever some that. optimum length someone came up with. Yeah, look what got packed into this. Yeah, too. it's tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that's another thing about science fiction nowadays is, you know, 400 pages is normal, but they're not they're not doing more in it, you know. It's uh right. this is this is just really got a lot in it for 250 pages and Right. He's not messing around here. He's not. Get He's to the not. point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and he expects you to keep up because they'll have other things like where crew members from the ship go to a bar and something happens or, you know, it's um, and they're they're not bothering to stop and spell out everything. You don't have to know everyone's backstory. Hmm. They just drop in what you need to know. And now I feel like everybody's got this idea that, oh, we need everyone's history. Well, let me explain about the bar. No, I, I don't. Care. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. You bet. And there's always exceptions. Right. There are. Always, always. There are. Yep. So good stuff. But yes, thank you for introducing me to Robert R. Chase. You are very welcome. He's like my current favorite author now. <laughs> I know. You're telling me that there are short stories. So. Yes. Yep. Yeah. We must find some. I know. I guess we need to see if we can track him down and oh. link to the podcast. That would be really Someone cool. still loves you, Robert. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay, so where are we going next? Oh. Oh, you know where we're going? We're going to Ebbing, Missouri. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Flannery O'Connor country, in yeah. a sense. cool. I'm going to mention this now because I think it helps a lot when you're watching the movie to know this. Mm-hmm. That um, there's a young man early in the movie who's reading a book. And the book he's reading is a good... It, I almost said a good story is hard to find. A good man is hard to find by Flannery O'Connor. Oh, nice. And if we remember, this is the same director who did In Bruges. Oh, really? Anonymous okay. Bosch was such a key figure to the whole movie. Yeah. I would say Flannery O'Connor's that same key to understanding the movie. Okay. So, just FYI, also, so much bad language, you will not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Got it. In Got effing it. Missouri, they call it. <laughs> nice. So well, I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Very good. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, well thanks talk for to picking the book weeks. again. And yep, talk to you in a couple weeks for sure. Bye, everybody. Bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs>